You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, May 5th. I'm Peter Cooper, and we have Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Tony Greer standing by to give you their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over the latest in market news. April was a month of extraordinary volatility, and at the end of it, U.S. markets had gains unlike anything we've seen in decades. The Nasdaq was up 15% by month's end, and the S&P 500 almost 13%. Many of the largest indexes have rebounded over 30% off of their 2020 lows. Despite all of this, consumer discretionary is bracing for a big hit soon. Let's look at some of the highlights that help fill in the picture. In a matter of weeks, American consumers had drastically changed their spending patterns. A handful of industries that have been booming are groceries, deliveries, and takeout, and some forms of entertainment, such as streaming. However, most others, as we expect, are down. Interestingly enough, though, overall spending for health has also suffered a drop. This is reflected in some of the most recent coverage in retail and autos. On Monday, J. Crew announced that they had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The longevity of the privately owned company was already on shaky ground before the pandemic. Not only were they late to the party in transitioning from more brick and mortar operations to a heavier emphasis in e-commerce, J. Crew is no longer keeping up with the current consumer taste. J.Crew was also in an uncertain position due to the fact that it was highly leveraged. The company's debt burden amounts to $1.7 billion, with some of those debts maturing next year. All of these factors have caused the company to crumble under this extreme pressure, and coronavirus may prove to be the catalyst for other retailers' downfalls, like JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, Sears, and Brook Brothers. However, retail isn't the only industry facing bankruptcies, as auto companies like Hertz are also currently at a brink of financial ruin. Hertz is currently down around 15% at the time of this filming, and overall, Hertz global holding stock have declined around 85% from February 21st. In March, Hertz began laying off workers in order to hold on to as much cash as they could to keep the business afloat. However, on April 29th, Hertz shared that they had missed substantial payments on their leases for their rental cars. Their balance sheet was already weaker going into the pandemic, but their aggressive cost reductions still weren't enough to meet their ongoing operating expenses. Creditors had granted Hertz an extension to May 4th to propose a solution on how to deal with the situation, but the company has had difficulty securing any funding. Hertz was almost ready to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection today, but was given another extension to May 22nd. Develop a financial strategy and structure that better reflects the economic impact of the COVID-19 global pandemic, according to Hertz. This provides them a little over two weeks more to prevent bankruptcy. 
The reality that many companies going bankrupt is becoming more and more clear in the recent days, making people question what the limits of the Fed's policies will be to rescue these companies from going under. I'll turn it over to Ash and Tony now. Ash? Thanks, Peter. Interesting stories about bankruptcy and forbearance about J. Crew and Hertz, something we're going to be looking at more in detail in the future. It's Tuesday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo 2020, just after market close in New York. I'm Ash Bennington, and I'm joined by Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. Welcome, Tony. Ash, how you doing, man? Doing great, man. How are you? Oh, great. Great to be here again. We're glad to have you. This is a perfect day to have you here because there's some mixed signals in markets, some good news, some bad news. Tell us, what are you looking at? Sticking with the same views, Ash, you know, the market's trading on optics, sentiment, and technicals. You know, if you ask me, we're in a high vol environment. Um, you know, when you come in over the weekend, you've got, you know, like you said, bankruptcy and J. Crew. You've got um, Warren Buffett sold airlines news out over the weekend and doesn't see a good future for them. You know, the, the temptation is really to sell in May and go away. So we saw a heavy opening yesterday. Stocks recovered. Then we saw the oil market get on a run and, you know, improve optics quite a bit with the, the big, you know, large magnitude rally we saw today. You know, so much there, Tony. I was joking yesterday, selling May and go away. I don't think anybody's going away this year. No, no, not in 2020, right? Yeah, we're all we're all stuck uh, behind our cute computers going on virtual vacations, I guess. Get your background picture of the beach. That's about as good as it's going to get. What did you think, Tony, uh, yesterday uh, uh, on the Warren Buffett news? What was your reaction to that? Uh, it's amazing that a guy like him didn't see opportunity in such a steep crash like this, you know, and had a negative attitude about the markets. But I'll be totally honest with you. I kind of phase out how much I pay attention to him. You know, I feel like he's being put up there quite a bit to, you know, whatever, to manufacture sentiment or manufacture story quite a bit. So, you know, you take everything that he says and does with a grain of salt. Warren Buffett's going to be fine. I don't know why everybody has to pay so much attention to his every move. So we'll see what happens to the airlines now. You know, that was part of the negative sentiment that weighed into the tape yesterday and things came back a little bit today. I didn't see how the airlines closed today, but, um, you know, it's just going to be one of the uphill climbs that the market has to get over. Yeah, I sometimes think they pay attention to uh, at the level that they do because it's a ratings issue, right? Warren Buffett's yeah. great ratings. Um, but I mean, obviously, a, a brilliant investor and, and decades of an unparalleled record. But I think some of that is just driven by the fact that when you put his face on screen and title it the Oracle of Omaha, you get people to tune in. People so in here with Babe Ruth, thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk more about the technicals. What are you thinking about in terms of price action right now? You know, we continue to demonstrate the ability to have red to green days for starters, which is which is a positive. We continue to make higher lows, which is a positive. Um, you know, the market continues to be in this sort of um, you know environment where we're getting the horrible negative news and negative earnings, negative economic news and negative earnings due to the shutdown. And the market is just still in the process of retracing its way higher. We've got a few explosive dynamics going on in the oil market that match up with the restart of the economy that we're talking about. Yeah. So price action, you know, price action is okay to me. You know, when I see that the drivers on the day on, on, on you know, what could have been a sleepy Monday are gold stocks and energy stocks that are, you know, driving the S&P, that's the animal spirit, um, you know, sort of print for the day for me. And so that's kind of encouraging for the tape. I'll be totally honest with you. And then you'll have other days that tech takes over. So to me, this is a restart rotation that might net net wind up a little bit higher on the upside. Let's take a look at those oil prices. So uh, WTI uh, crude 
changed uh, 20% positive. Uh, that's up four points uh, to close at 24 spot 55. Brent up 14.4%, uh, up four points, uh, roughly 3.91, and closing at 31 spot 11. There's talk, I saw a story on Bloomberg uh, about potential uh, for the shale industry to be getting restarted. I mean, this was a story that we were writing the obituary for entire American industry, it seems like two weeks ago. And now there's there's talk at the $30 level about there being some demand. It's quite interesting. I mean, the last thing I read was about Exxon and Chevron shutting their premium basin wells down to, you know, single digit numbers. But yeah, maybe the journalists are getting creative. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's just there's just a whipsawing effect on the news cycle, right? It's a uh, it's like a manic depression. You, you turn on uh, you turn on the, the channel at, uh, at one minute and you hear a story like one that hit me was that uh, they're talking about potentially dismantling dismantling the coronavirus task force. This was Mike Pence talking about moving it out of the White House and into FEMA. That's a in theory a sign of normalization. Then we had uh, Bill De Blasio out today saying it was not such a great day in New York City. The coronavirus cases are rising. So it's this weird effect. And what I really like about you, Tony, is you're able to cut through that just by looking at the tape, right? Getting a real sense of what's happening in prices, where the demand is. Uh, and where the prints are taking place. So to pick up on that, uh, what are some of the other things that you're looking at? You know, the, at, at 40 vol, Ash, it's very difficult to hide what you're doing, right? Because there, there are portfolio managers out there that want to get certain stocks on the tape that are cheap at uh, on long-term time horizons, you know, at the moment. And so, you know, price action is really just telling a story of what everybody's trying to accomplish. And when I look up at the end of the day and study you know, where each sector wound up, it kind of matches where we rotated from, you know, two weeks ago, we were trading in that longer lockdown than expected. And we right. saw a little bit, you know, we saw a couple of heavier days on the tape, then we turned into trading for the, you know, uh, shutdown, yeah, excuse me, the reopening rotation. Right. And, you know, volatility is still hanging in there, you know, excessively um, exuberant openings wound up getting sold, you know, um, underpriced markets, you know, are gap lower openings wind up getting bought. And that's what happens in high volatility. Everything that's going on is really transparent on the tape. And it's one of the great things about, you know, this market right now, you know, there's certain stocks that are breaking out technically and in the last day of weakness have just gotten a chance to test support and then rally again. So to me, I mean, that's as telegraphic as a market could possibly be. And one that gives you a lot of opportunities to upsize your bets. Interesting. So you mentioned a couple of things there. First, uh, sectors, and then second, individual stocks. Let's take a look. What are some of the things that you, in those two categories, that are jumping out at you most prominently right now? Yeah, you know, well, I, you know, let's just start in energy, the energy stocks that I've gotten long in my newsletter. Um, you know, that on a technical basis alone, they've taken as much negative news as they can. And that's one of the sectors that's pricing in a restart now. Everybody was literally in shock from that episode in May futures where they went negative. They priced up, you know, negative price options on the board of Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and then the price never looked back again, right? Everybody rolled out beyond June into July and August. And now, as you see, when somebody comes in to buy Junes, there are none. So the price of June goes up 20%, and that affects the optics and gets everything rolling. So that's one sector that really buys into this restart story. Then you've got home builders or have been acting great in the last several days. Um, you know, that rhymes with the restart. As soon as guys can get out banging nails again, I would imagine that that sector is one of the first to explode closest back to full capacity because it was operating on pretty strong terms before the virus broke out. And now we've got even lower rates. 
So I also think that there might be a rush out of the cities into the suburbs. So maybe that affects the builders even better in the long term. So there are a couple of positive aspects going on right now. They're very much part of a retracement rally. But when you see the industrial names and manufacturing names that have gotten bludgeoned through this shutdown blatantly just by turning their engines off, starting to come back to life, um, we finally had one day um, in the last several months where refineries had uh, multi-sigma moves to the upside. Um, both Phillips, um, Phillips 66, Marathon Petroleum, Valero had strong moves higher the other day. That's a blatant restart story. They've only been operating at 65% capacity. And so now that's probably going to go higher as we start burning gas. Um, and you're seeing tech come to life, right? There's going to be more testing. There's going to be, you know, a, a bigger biosecurity level on top of everything in the world. And that's showing um, showing itself in biotech stocks leading the way in the last couple of days. So, you know, the tape is pretty transparent in terms of the sectors that are performing. Lastly, just to touch on it once again, you know, the FANG members, you know, the big cap stocks that are likely going to weather this, you know, with no problems on their credit, no, ble- excuse me, no blemishes on their credit and uh, enough cash in the bank to weather any storm, they're performing as well. So, you know, the tape is, at, like I said, at 40 vol, when, when things are moving, the tape is really telegraphing what's going on quite clearly. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the, uh, the comment that you made about, uh, about getting guys buying it nails again. One of the things that's interesting about the construction sector is that there's the potential for a snapback uh, if demand comes back. You know, it gets pulled forward because people didn't buy houses. All that construction came offline. Other industries are very different from that. For example, you know, you're not going to go and make up for the six steak dinners that you lost that you didn't eat because uh, the restaurants were closed. But things like construction, you could see more of a snapback in data in, uh, in demand rather uh, because you have the fact that it was just offline. It's gets pulled forward. You know, that, that's it. So, in the, you know, in line with um, seeing those sectors come back to life a little bit, we'll see what happens. But the S&P is getting toward a much more serious resistance level, more broadly speaking. Um, so that'll be a, a more a more important test, right? This has been a one-way train off of the bottom, which was a one-way train off of the top, right? February, March, April, you know, three of literally the most volatile months I've ever seen in my life um, in the equity market. So, you know, there, there's going to be uh, a lot more volatility left on the backside of this as the market tries to digest what's going on right now. Yeah, S&P top, closing top was uh, February 19 at 33.86. You were talking about resistance levels. Tell us a little bit about what your view is there. Yeah, you know, the S&P is starting to tra- retrace back up into, I guess, the 100 and 200 day moving average. Um, I don't know exactly where they are. They are coming between 29.50 and 3,000 up above. Um, the market has tends to have a really, really good memory. And if I use my memory, I can remember last fall playing the breakout beyond S&P 30.30. That was like a double top that we saw. And then I guess in August, September, when they turned on the repo window jets and, you know, basically posted as much liquidity at the repo window as any levered uh, fund would ever need, the market started taking off. And it was when we broke through 3030 that the market went straight to 3400 in straight line, literally a 90 degree angle. And then we ran into this black swan. So. 3030 is going to be another level for me on the upside. That's my ultimate top. That's where by that level, I'm out of all of my length that I've accumulated in the dip. Um, I'm probably looking to turn the boat short, but um, it's too, like I said, at 40 vol, it's a little bit too early to tell that decision. Let's take one step at a time, see if we get there. 
And what about to the downside? Do you have anything, any particular technical levels that you're looking for there as potential reversal points? Yeah, we pounded a couple of lows just above 2,700, I guess, earlier on Monday. And I think um, that's probably 2,700. There's a double bottom, you know, on the, on the intraday charts. That's the short-term support. Um, and below there, it, you know, once you fall below that level and then the 50 day moving average, now you're kind of in a free fall zone for the S&P. So you probably get somewhere, you know, support then is probably not down to, you know, somewhere below 2600, 2650 like that. So, you know, there's 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 opportunity for plenty of S&P volatility for the rest of this year. That's for sure. Tony, we we're talking earlier about something that you wrote in the morning navigator about the last FOMC meeting and some insights that you took away from that. What's your thinking about that right now? Yeah, there was some powerful verbiage in the last FOMC meeting, right? I have um, I have a quote over here because I pulled this one out because I had to read it. So, you know, in his prepared comments, this this one jumped out at me from Jerome Powell, where he said, many of the programs we are undertaking to support the flow of credit rely on emergency lending powers, right? So he's talking about those emergency lending facilities that they've created. Then... We will continue to use these powers forcefully, proactively, and aggressively until we are confident that we are solidly on the road to recovery. Now, that to me is just a signal that says, you can try to bet against me if you want, but we're pretty adamant about the task at hand here. So that's that's the kind of you know messaging to me that when the market gets, you know, looks a little bit heavy and things look like they're gonna curl over that we don't really have a waterfall ahead because sentiment is already bearish and the Federal Reserve is going to continue to expand its balance sheet, right? So if we start getting some more bad news about the recovery, about the loan programs, about um, shortages of capital in the markets, about any tightness at the repo window, what is the Federal Reserve going to do? They're going to come back you know, forcefully, actively, and proactively with more accommodation. And right. what is the tape, tape going to do when it sees that? likely stop going down. So, you know, we're going to have these opposing forces now where it's going to be the Federal Reserve and their word and their credibility up against, you know, the fallout data from the shutdown. And, you know, like we're leading into this Friday, we're going to get an unemployment data, this unemployment number this Friday that's going to make everybody choke in their breakfast. So, yeah. you know, we'll see what the market looks like on the other side of that. I'm looking forward to that data point really tremendously because, if we get, you know, say we get a number worse than expected and the bond market doesn't make a new high, you know, maybe that's a chance that maybe that's um, a signal that the bond market has already reached its peak and yields can start going higher. And we can start getting into a little bit more of a market normalization rotation rather than a restart rotation. That's my next sort of phase that I'm looking for. Right. You know, the other interesting thing about that quote is the last few words until we're solidly on the road to recovery or words to that effect. What does that say to you? That's an interesting, interesting language. Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, he can claim that the economy is going to be eventually on the solid road to recovery, but or he can print all the money in the world and it's not going to put those restaurants that we just talked about or these hotels or the car companies or Gold's Gym back in business. Right. right. So that those are going to be gone forever. The landscape of our culture is going to be changed forever. Various, you know, from retail to manufacturing perspectives as we change supply chain. So, you know, the economic side of this, as I've been portraying in my note on it as regularly as I can, is a totally separate story. Right. If you want to talk, talk about the economic story, find somebody that is on the same page as you and talk economics. And if you want to talk about the market story, 
reference this quote right here where the Federal Reserve chairman says that he's going to use his powers forcefully, proactively, aggressively. And think of that before you want to bet against them. You know, that's the only advice that I would have. That's all. You know, it's funny. We saw in, in 2008 uh, people uh, who probably should have known better get their faces ripped off because they got into a philosophical argument with the chairman of the Fed. Right. That uh, these markets are game. This isn't right. And mm-hmm. and they bet against them. And, it, you know, you do so at your own peril. The financial justice warriors come out and they make great points. And if there were ever got a chance to represent themselves in the Supreme Court, they would probably win, you know, right. like, but but they may never get their day to do that because we've got unelected officials in charge of the piggy bank. Well, it almost seems like they don't want the Supreme Court. They want the Oxford Union Debating Society. They want to have a philosophical debate. It's not even illegal. It's like a philosophical issue. And it's it's kind of like it gets political. It gets socioeconomical. It becomes cultural. It becomes racial. It becomes, you know, it's too much too heavy of a ball of wax for me. I, I'm not smart enough to sort any of that out. I, I like to just focus on which direction the tape is going to go. Right. And that clarifies. And that's what, one of the things we love about having you on, Tony, is that you have that fresh perspective that says, OK, great. There's all this noise that's happening here. But let me tell you what's actually happening on the tape. Man, that's what I try to do every day. As soon as my feet hit the floor, Ash, I'm, I'm literally it's so thrilled that you notice and, and put it so beautifully. Thank you. So what else? To, to that effect, uh, what else are you looking at? What else are you thinking about? What else is informing your perspective right now? I'm not an expert on corporate credit, but the high yield market seems to be holding in. Um, you know, the, the massive uh, shock and awe outflows have stopped. You know, as soon as the Fed accommodation came in, it sort of put that high yield threat back together. Um, spreads have come down, um, you know, as we sort of go back, to the, uh, as we sort of surf down the back end of the high yield spread to Treasury curve. You know, remember at, um, you know, at the bottom of this move in the S&P, spreads were at their widest to Treasuries. And now we're sort of surfing back the other side where they're tightening up. So as those continue to tighten, which we are seeing and. As the you know high yield ETFs manage to hold in there without any you know bankruptcies coming across the tape within them just yet, right. although we do probably expect those. In the absence of that, um, that's another that's another sort of sturdy um, platform for me to be able to base a bullish argument on in the short term for a continuation of this retracement. So that's just one of the things that I'm looking at to keep me sort of in the confidence game that this can continue. Are there any sectors in particular that you're looking at or are you just looking at it in the broadest possible context to get a sense? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, Ash, I don't want to keep going back to it, but I think the opportunity in energy right now is pretty freaking fascinating. You know, they were they were the setup is just unbelievable where even before the coronavirus, these stocks came under pressure with, you know, Larry Fink and the entire world moving toward that ESG platform and, you know, new ways of investing. You know, now we have to decide on the side of the virus whether that's really important or not and whether that's going to get a lot of oxygen. And I got a feeling that if it doesn't, in the wake of seeing headlines like that and in the wake of seeing, you know, this ridiculous crude oil going negative and storage tanks are cushing full, all I know is every time that happens with storage, energy winds up working its way out, right? So now that we've got an artificial restart, an artificial shutdown in the rearview mirror and we're about to restart, I'm really interested to see what can happen here on the upside. So I think energy is a sector that I'm really focused on. I mean, we may have seen a generational bottom there um, for a lot of different reasons. You know, we had the Saudis and Russians pouring oil in on top of this whole demand destruction debacle. 
that has subsided. So the dynamics are changing on a really high volatile basis in the energy market right now. So I think that's where I'm focusing a lot of my um, short term trading opportunity and my sort of uh, putting a lot of my chips. So the other sector, I think when it comes down to it after the smoke settles, that I'm starting to do a little bit more homework in that I think is going to be massively necessary in your portfolio is um, electricity mm. in the form of owning utilities for the reasons um, such as, you know, one of the most important things to a nation as we move so toward a little bit more, like I said, biosecurity and other forms of security is going to be having a, you know, I think that if we open our eyes and say, what would the next crisis be that could potentially derail us? You know, we're going to deal with this health crisis now, what else? And I think securing our electric grids is going to be hopefully become one of the, you know, top priorities. And, you know, we can move to nuclear. There's a lot of different options, um, but that conversation is really interesting to me. So sort of the nationalization of energy is becoming a more possible idea for me. And so that space is going to be really interesting in the future. So energy, electricity, and utilities is where I'm going to be putting a lot of mental energy in the next several months. Yeah, you make so many interesting points. There's so much there. I mean, but the first thing that comes to mind is when you talk about energy security is that when something really unexpected goes really wrong, it puts everyone in the frame of mind of, oh my God, where are other vulnerabilities? What else can possibly go wrong? Things that we haven't thought about for 100 years, a pandemic. I mean, this was something that was uh, literally the stuff of science fiction movies six months ago. And now here we are. Um, and in the energy space, you know, I mean, the, the other thing that I think is really interesting is you, you bring up the point of where we were uh, in terms of pricing coming into this crisis, which is something that I very often don't hear people thinking about. And, you know, some of those, those stocks really took a shellacking on kind of the points that you were making earlier, which was the some of the some of the social movements. And uh, look, I think it's great that Mr. Fink is uh, looking to invest in uh, renewable energy. It's a wonderful thing for the world. But the reality is, in the short term, it really doesn't change a lot in the way of the demand picture. It doesn't really change much on the supply side either. If you got a Lincoln Navigator, you still have to fill it up, regardless of what the portfolio allocation is uh, over at BlackRock. So these are very interesting points about where we were coming in. Are there any particular uh, places in the energy space that you're looking, sectors, subsectors, particular names? The least leveraged, the most highly capitalized. As you know, I'm not smart enough to figure out each of the smaller ones that are going to be maybe higher performers um, percentage-wise, you know, because we're all talking about, to me, this is all finding the right stock for the right payout on the trade. And while it may be, you may, you probably have a chance of getting a higher payout on picking one of the survivors out of the shale, if there are any, or, you know, one of the other smaller companies or oil services companies, I'd rather just go with the companies with the most dosh in the bank and look at ExxonMobil and look at Chevron, who are actively and visibly cut down their operations, cut down their expenses, you know, shrunk in their um their assets, et cetera, et cetera, and maybe come out of this a healthier financial entity with the ability to be more profitable and with some higher margins. Because I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, everybody still has the memory of negative oil futures in their head. And, you know, mm -hmm. when I start thinking about if I could buy my lifetime supply of gasoline right now at the, at, at last sale, I would write the check and, and just buy it all and put it in my yard. So if people are thinking like that, you know, then I feel like, uh, companies that burn gas on an enormous, enormous level are saying, OK, how can we level this cheaper gas into our into our business plan? So that's just, that's just the way that I'm thinking about it right now. 
Yeah, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me. These are just good, clean, solid fundamentals. I get lost when people talk about dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium theory. Yeah. Um, you know, this makes sense to me. And, and uh, Tony, when you say I'm not smart enough to know, my feeling is that probably a lot of uh, the rest of the world isn't smart enough either. And you're probably playing this space, if you're thinking that way, that people shouldn't be. So I think that the good, sort of good clean fundamentals, uh, understanding from the, from the ground level why something makes sense is just such a critical way to approach markets, especially when we see this kind of volatility and this kind of unpredictability. There could be a lot of opportunities in this, a lot of opportunity. So one thing we haven't yet touched on is the reopening and its impact on the economy and where you think markets are moving based on that sort of calculus. Obviously, there was a lot of pushback over the weekend in a couple of different places, right? You saw out in California, there were people swarming around the beaches, wanting to get back on, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can totally sympathize with that idea um, because we're at a point where the government is sort of taking a little bit too much liberty and saying, you know, we're trying to keep everybody safe in the entire world from everything. And this really wasn't about mortality when we talked about shutting people in their homes. It was so that we weren't overwhelming the healthcare system. And I feel like, and I could be wrong because I'm not an expert, but the headlines and, and the sort of, you know, Twitter feeds tell me that the healthcare system is currently not overwhelmed. And while there will be a risk to the virus, people do have to get back about their lives in the economy again. So to me, I'm waiting for sort of big New York looking marquee like grand openings, you know, where there's, you know, people in the Apple store paying attention to social distancing, but shopping and, you know, maybe some kind of scenery like that. And I'm looking for the S&P to get up into that 3000 level at the same time in excitement so that I can really let them have it. Is really my idea because that's where I'm going to sell everything that I've accumulated in the short term because I can always buy it back if the market continues. Um, and then I'm going to take a fresh look because this is going to be really volatile. Um, I was complaining about the whole time on the way down that the tape was going down in one straight line and there were no waves, right? So finally, we got a wave higher in April and I'm not uh, foolish enough to think that May is going to be a continuation of April. Right. The market is just digesting those really heavy, dynamic months in February and March where it just got pulverized. And so now we saw a retracement in April. And I would love to see May pan out where, you know, eventually we get a reopening in New York with people going back to restaurants and the Apple store and everything high profile with the S&P trading at a big, you know, sort of resistance level and a lot of sectors really firing. And I think that would be an opportunity to make a great sale to look potentially be short into the next set of um, bad economic data optics and then go from there, right? Because that's still going to be, you know, that's still lurking on the tape is how many unemployed we finally get to and what percentage of that is the workforce. It's going to be horrifying and PMI is going to go to 20 and, you know, we're going to have to live through all that. So we'll see what the market can bear in the meantime. Yeah. And once again, it comes back to the tape and for you, that key 3030 <laughs> level on the S&P. Yep, totally does. Totally does. Hopefully we'll get there. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.